Father in heaven, I want to pray that you would bless our time here. Uh, I want to ask that you would join us, that you would fellowship with us heart to heart. And Lord, that you would uh, send your spirit to be here and make, make your will for us known. I pray that for myself, that you would teach, to teach all of us uh, how we can walk more perfectly with you and uh, fulfill your desires for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, so again, part two here. Uh, I'd like to look at the story of Joseph. Go to Genesis 41 if you have your Bible with you. I'm going to uh, summarize a little bit of Joseph's life here. Joseph was the son of Jacob, the firstborn of his favorite wife, which was Rachel. You remember the story of Rachel and Leah. And uh, Joseph was favored because of that. And he's um, the recipient of his brother's hatred and jealousy because he was daddy's boy. They didn't like that. And so they captured him and sold him as a slave into Egypt. You remember when he was there, he was at Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife falsely accused him, and then he wound up in jail. While he was in jail, he had the baker and the butler in their dreams, and he had interpreted their dream, and the butler told him that he would remember Joseph, but then promptly forgot. And Joseph sat in uh, prison for an additional two years. That takes us up to Genesis 41. We're going to look at the first eight verses and talk about Pharaoh's dream this afternoon. It says in verse 1, it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh dreamed, and behold, he stood by the river. That would be the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the river seven well-favored cows and fat-fleshed, and they fed in a meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, bad-looking and lean-fleshed, and stood by the other cows upon the brink of the river. And the bad-looking, uh, lean-fleshed cows did eat up the seven well-favored, good-looking, that is, and fat-fleshed cows. So Pharaoh woke up. Verse 5, he slept and dreamed the second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, the Old English King James Version here, the Old English word for corn is not the same as we think of corn. The old, old English corn means grain, not corn on the cob. So this is grain, maybe wheat, maybe barley. It was an Egyptian grain. So seven ears of grain came up on one stalk, rank and good, and behold, seven thin ears blasted with the east wind sprung up after them. And the seven thin ears devoured the seven rank and full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream that came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof, and Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none that could interpret them to Pharaoh. It's a very interesting story. I want to go through it and make some applications to us. I want to summarize first. There are first seven well-fed, good-looking cows that come up out of the river. They're followed by seven bad-looking, poorly-fed cows, and the seven bad-looking cows eat the good-looking cows. This is followed by the second dream, seven good-looking heads of grain, followed by seven bad-looking heads of grain, and the bad ones eat the good ones. It says, though, to end, that the bad grain was blasted by an east wind. What does all this mean here? We continue on with the story. The butler remembered Joseph, told Pharaoh about Joseph. Pharaoh was desperate to get an answer for the problems that he saw in the dream things he didn't understand. So in desperation, Pharaoh called for Joseph. 
And speaking to Joseph, said, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of what? Peace. There's a couple things that Pharaoh adds. He repeats his dream to Joseph. We won't read through the whole thing. But Pharaoh adds two little details that aren't in the first part. Pharaoh first says in verse 19... I never saw any cows like that ever in Egypt. They were not just bad. They were really bad. I'd never seen a cow looking that bad anywhere in Egypt. The second thing he adds is that there was no one who could tell the interpretation. And I want to put those things together. Pharaoh had a problem. What made his problem even worse is he had no one to go to about his problem. For just a brief moment, as I talked about this morning, I don't know how you feel about your current president. He's a very divisive figure, obviously. Our people in positions of leadership in our government have real stresses. Real. Whether Trump is somebody you like or dislike, or if Obama was somebody that you liked or disliked, they had very real stresses. And unfortunately, as a reflection of our society, it's becoming more and more difficult to get anything done in politics just because of the hatred inherent in politics. And our political leaders face issues not only in society at large, but increasing issues just within politics. And who do they go to when they need help? I don't know. I can tell you that Pharaoh had real problems. This dream bothered him. This wasn't the beginning of Pharaoh's problems, but it certainly was an additional problem that he had. And Pharaoh knew that this was a real problem and he was very uncomfortable with this dream. And he had no one to go to for solutions. His wise men, his cabinet, his counselors, his advisors had no advice for what Pharaoh saw coming upon the world. And what's worse is he didn't even understand it. It's kind of like, uh, they used this illustration this morning. It's kind of like being sick and not knowing what you're sick with. I'd rather know that I have cancer, have the doctor tell me you have probably three days to live, than feel like I'm about to die and not know why. That's kind of the way Pharaoh felt in this situation. He knew that something was happening. He knew it was not good, but he didn't know exactly what it was, and that made the whole thing worse, and nobody else could help him. Except for one person. And that was Jesus Christ. In the person of Joseph. I like those two details. Never seen anything this bad in all my life. Never seen a cow that bad in all my life. And I don't have anybody to talk to about this problem that I'm having. I don't understand this dream. And God provided a solution for Pharaoh. Continue on with the story. Pharaoh had rehearsed his dream to Joseph. Joseph now responds, the dream of Pharaoh is one. God has showed you, Pharaoh, what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The two dreams are the same dream. It's one. And the seven thin and bad-looking cows that came up after them out of the river are seven years. And the seven empty ears blasted with the east wind shall be seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. What God is about to do, he shows to Pharaoh. 
I really like certain things. I've never before, until I really studied into this, realized how much gospel is in the story of Joseph for Pharaoh. You know, what's interesting about Pharaoh is Pharaoh is not really a great guy. I don't know him personally. I don't mean to criticize him. But you think about Egyptian culture and Egyptian religion. Pharaoh probably worshipped Ra, the sun god. Maybe Osiris. I uh, can't remember the other one that starts with an I, and I want to say Isis, but that's not it. What's worse is that Pharaoh was believed by many to be at the top of the religious system. He himself was actually viewed as a god, and he may have viewed himself as a god. And now Pharaoh, in his whole religious system, including himself at the top, was incapable of providing an answer to what lie in front of him through this dream. But Joseph's words to Pharaoh are these, God has showed you. I don't think that Pharaoh deserved a visit from God, to be honest with you. I don't think that a pagan, heathen, sun-worshipping, Nile River-worshipping pagan deserved a visit from God. But you know what? That makes it very abundantly clear that it's a good thing that I'm not God. We human beings are judgmental. We're critical. We like to criticize our leaders. We like to criticize, frankly, anybody that does anything different than the way we want it done or perceive that it should be done. I don't mean to be critical, but I guess I just kind of was, wasn't I? But that's what's precisely so beautiful about Jesus is that he gives things to people who don't deserve it precisely because they need it. Pharaoh didn't get God's presence in his sleep because he deserved it, but because God loved him. Joseph said it to Pharaoh in verse 25. He said it again in verse 28. What God is about to do, he shows Pharaoh. And I like going back to verse 16. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. It would be easy to criticize. It would be easy to to point the finger at Pharaoh or any other person that we know, our, our leaders of the day. But Joseph's beautiful, challenging example is that God loves the unlovable. And God wants to save the unlovable. And God wants to give peace to those that don't have it. For sure, because they need it. Ellen White adds in Patriarchs and Prophets that it was humiliating for Pharaoh to turn away from his magicians and his wise men to a man that was not only a prisoner, but a foreigner to the country. But she says he was ready to accept the lowliest service if his troubled mind could find relief. You know, in our world, I come to the conclusion that there are people who really want relief. And they find, like Pharaoh, they have no one to go to. Keeping our theme of our mission as a people. God wants us to be those people that can be turned to when people need peace. It's easy, I'm going to admit honestly, as Seventh-day Adventists, to fall into a trap of criticizing and viewing ourselves as being better than other religions because we have the truth. 
I eat better than you. I listen to better music than you. I dress better than you. My theology is better than you. My day of worship is better than you. I tithe better than you. My understanding of prophecy is better than you. You understand? You've seen that mentality? I have to admit that I had that mentality. Yes. So sad. But God wants us to be the people that other people turn to when they need peace. I'm sure Joseph had to learn that the hard way. Two years in jail, sold into slavery by his brothers. I'm sure humbled Joseph severely. And he learned what it meant to have peace. And he offered it to Pharaoh. It's a beautiful story. goes on here. Joseph continues his interpretation. Behold, there come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after that seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land, and the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine that will follow, for it will be really bad, very grievous. As good as the seven years of prosperity were going to be, the seven years of famine were going to be so much worse that no one would even remember that they had seven good years first. And then he ends in verse 32, and for that the dream was doubled to Pharaoh twice. It is because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. What's really interesting about this story is, is to me, I want to know how Joseph knew what the dream meant. There's nothing in the Bible that says that Joseph was given a dream himself. There's nothing that says that he was given a vision. There was nothing that said an angel came to visit him and explained to Joseph ahead of time what Pharaoh's dream meant. When he turned to the book of Daniel, there were lots of things that Daniel didn't understand. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream and, and Nebuchadnezzar shared his dream with Daniel, Daniel didn't know what it meant. Daniel and his three friends went to their closet and they prayed, prayed, prayed all night and God gave Daniel a dream to explain Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And had to tell him the dream because Pharaoh couldn't, uh, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember it. In Daniel chapter 9, when Daniel was struggling with understanding the prophecies of Jeremiah concerning the 70 years, he was pleading, pleading with God. God sent an angel to explain to Daniel the things that he didn't understand. When you get to other parts of the Bible, the, the, the prophets and the, the, the apostles sometimes, they said, didn't even understand the things that they wrote. John was that way in Revelation. He wrote stuff down and said, I don't actually understand what I'm writing, but I'm writing it down. My question is, how did Joseph know what Pharaoh's dream meant? And I've come up with one solution. It's the only one I can think of. I want to ask you to think about it. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to swallow it. I'm not asking to persuade anybody against their own thought processes. But are you ready for it? Experience. I believe that God gave Pharaoh a dream that Joseph understood in light of his farm-based experience as a kid. He grew up in a farming culture, and I believe when he heard Pharaoh's dream, he thought back on his upbringing, up back, on his, uh, back on his farming experience, and he figured it out because the dream is actually not all that complicated. Let's look at it here. Seven good-looking cows are feeding in a meadow. 
That meadow is sitting beside the Nile River. The Hebrew word actually indicates that it was literally beside the Nile. So seven good-looking cows are feeding in the meadow. The meadow is being watered by the Nile River. Why is the river watering the meadow? Because there's enough water in the river to water the meadow. Why is there enough water in the river? Because it rained somewhere. The Nile is a huge river. Stretching through many parts of Africa, not just Egypt. Seven skinny cows come up next. Why are they skinny? Any kid that grew up on a farm keeping sheep or cattle or goats or whatever would know a skinny cow has one very simple problem. He's not eating. There's no food. Maybe it's sick and it stopped eating. The next detail in the story is there'll be seven years of abundant harvest. Why? Because it was raining. That'll be followed by seven years of really poor harvest. Why? There's no rain. How do you know there's no rain? What'd you say? Because it's not raining? The river's a little lower. Why wasn't there rain? Little detail in the story. Blasted by the east wind. You weren't sitting in this morning, were you? No, cool. I did. It was in the text, wasn't it? Blasted by the east wind. That east wind, where does the east come from? Literally, the phrase in the Hebrew reads up, dried up by a east wind. What's east of Egypt? If I throw it up on a map right here, here's Egypt right in the middle. What's that big country right there? That's a desert. Do you know where Joseph grew up? He grew up right here. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen periodically that the weather patterns shift in the Middle East and the winds blow into Egypt and into Israel, the promised land, out of Saudi Arabia. And when it does that, it brings in hot, dry air, raises the temperature, and decreases rainfall. For those of you that are global warming skeptics, as I am, for those of you that are climate change skeptics, as I am, the story of Joseph shows us, recorded in the history of the Bible, that weather patterns have changed and produced seven years of drought, famine, in the land of Egypt in the days of Joseph. Joseph grew up in that land. This is a very, very simple thing given in reverse order in the scripture. First, there would be a dry, hot wind coming out of Arabia. That would dry up the cropland. That would dry up the pasture land for the cattle. That would cause the cattle to go from fat to skinny. It's really not that complicated of a dream, especially if you're a farmer and familiar with animals and the weather, as Joseph was growing up in a farming family. Joseph's family, like any other family, perhaps like Noah, raised his animals on the pasture. What did they eat themselves? Whatever food they raised. They ate their animals. They milked their animals. They grew their own food, like many people in that time, especially Israelites in that culture, would have been growing their own food. And Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream. I again believe God gave Pharaoh that dream specifically because Joseph could interpret it in light of his experience. Without a visit from an angel, without a dream or a vision from God, explaining it, Joseph knew it because he had lived it. He experienced it. 
Joseph was prepared for the crisis of Egypt, Pharaoh's problem, by his upbringing. I would ask the question, knowing what we know as Seventh-day Adventists about what's coming upon our world, are we preparing ourselves to practically meet the needs of our society when the things we believe will happen actually start happening? Are we training, educating our young people to be prepared not only to sustain themselves, but to be a positive, indispensable benefit to society around them when society needs them the most? Joseph could not have foreseen what was going to happen to him in Egypt. But God did. And God has given us the same opportunities. He sees in advance what we cannot see. And he's told us to prepare in a certain way. Not just to sustain ourselves. But as we follow his method of preparation. We are putting ourselves in the position that Joseph was in. To be an absolutely indispensable answer of peace to Pharaoh when he calls in need. Will the magicians and wise men of the last moments of earth's history have any better answers than Pharaoh's wise men or magicians? Will the wise men of our day, will President Trump's cabinet, will the, 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 the members of Congress, your senators and representatives have any better answers when the time comes at the very end? Who alone will understand what's happening to earth? God and the people he shared it with, his people. Pharaoh, looking upon this uh, situation and Joseph's response, we'll pick it up in Genesis 41-33, Joseph's final words to Pharaoh. Now therefore let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up a fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Let them gather all the food of those good years that come and lay them up grain under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities and that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt that the land perish not through famine. Jesus said in the New Testament, there shall be famines, pestilence. You remember reading that passage? He actually said, don't be afraid of these things. This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. I have this funny, sneaky suspicion. This is not an inspired suspicion. It's my own personal suspicion that we have become so dependent in American society upon the transportation of food from long distances away that we are absolutely primed for one accident to destroy our food system. I'm not talking about some act of God. I'm talking about a wacko terrorist who figures out how to knock out the food grid or the transportation grid or the electric grid. I'm talking about some natural disaster that strikes the Salinas coast of California, the central coast of California, where the majority of America's fresh produce is grown. The average plate of American food comes from 1,500 miles away. Real statistic, not made that up, did not make that up. 
we are sitting in a practical situation where any substantial disturbance would radically affect what you and I eat tomorrow. Most grocery stores have three days of food. You watch Hurricane Katrina or any other similar natural disaster, you figure out the first thing that happens is people panic. What they don't buy gets destroyed in the rush. And what's normally three days of food gets hoarded up by a few and turns into zero days of food. But aside from the practical things like a terrorist attack, you and I know that something else is coming upon the world. And I would suggest, I have the funny feeling that the whole world is going to be set up by Satan for chaos. Food chaos, economic chaos. There'll be all sorts of chaos at the end of time. Satan is working over the whole planet because it's who he is. He wants to kill as many people as possible. I have this funny, sneaky suspicion that what Joseph went through will be in some ways very similar to what some of us might go through. If I flip the question around and ask not only why did Joseph understand the dream, why did Pharaoh not? Is because he was so disconnected from food and farming and where food came from and how it grew that he couldn't even figure out something as simple as why a cow would be skinny or what the east wind meant. He didn't pay attention to the weather. He had people beside him, fanning him every time he wanted to cool off. Many Americans, many of us, I was certainly this way, still am this way to a degree, are so ignorant about food and where it comes from and how it's grown. We're so disconnected. And I guess I'm saying two things here. This, again, is about why we should be interested in this. Number one is because I happen to like to eat. And I like to eat good food that's good for me. But I also know what's coming upon our world, and I want to be prepared for it. And going back to what we talked about earlier, so we can help somebody else when they have need. I believe, again, that God gave Pharaoh a dream that Joseph could understand in light of his experience, that he had been trained from his moment of birth to meet the crisis of Egypt. And that God wants to put Adventists in uniquely similar situations. I believe it's an opportunity for us to be an indispensable part of our society and to give our world an answer of peace when they know nothing else. This thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants, and Pharaoh said unto his servants, probably better translated, where can we find someone else like this? The answer is, we can't find anybody else like this. You know why? They had already looked. I'm sure that Pharaoh turned over every rock in Egypt, intellectual rock in Egypt, trying to find somebody who knew what that dream meant. And Pharaoh's answer, where can we find someone's rhetorical? There was no one else to find. Joseph, you're the guy. It's essentially what he said here. Where can we find a man like this, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, For as much as God has showed you all this, 
There is no one so discreet and wise as you are. Share a couple of quotes with you. This is from uh, Special Testimonies on Education. Ellen White writes, the most effective way to teach the who? Heathen. What was Pharaoh? Pharaoh was a heathen. The most effective way to teach the heathen who don't know God is through his what? In this way, far more readily than any other method, they can be made to realize the difference between their idols, the works of their own hands, and the true God, the maker of heaven and earth. What's really unfortunate about this, and I think if I can spin it as positively as possible, um, is that Adventists 10, Christians as a whole, tend to be disinterested in anything that has to do with food, where food comes from, how it's grown, whether it's organic, or environmental issues, sustainability issues, and the general tendency in society is the more conservative you are politically or religiously, the less interested you are in those things. Have you noticed that? It's the liberals who want you to drive a Prius. It's also the liberals who run the best vegetarian restaurants that I've ever eaten at. It's also people that lean towards the left that run most of your health food stores. I have an interesting question for you. What's the most profitable grocery store in America? The most profitable grocery store in America. Not the biggest, the most profitable. What'd you say? Natural foods? Whole foods. Now, the last couple of years have been a little tough for Whole Foods because there's so much organic in so many other stores now. I don't know if it's still true, but at least as of a couple of years ago, Whole Foods was the most profitable grocery store in America. You know who started Whole Foods? A Mormon. I find it interesting that Mormons have similar health beliefs to Adventists. I find it interesting that Mormons have similar beliefs about the last days in some regards, and they particularly believe in growing and preserving their own food for a time of crisis. I'm saying to you that Adventists, look, <laughs> this is being recorded and going to be on the internet too. I love Adventists. I love you. <laughs> but you and I are in the same collective boat. And we have missed opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to capitalize on the truths that God has given us, not just the Sabbath, not just the state of the dead, not just the unique theological truths, but we have missed opportunities. We have failed to capitalize on opportunities to reach out into the public and show ourselves an indispensable part of the fabric of society. You know who pioneered the food, move, food movement, the modern food, move, food movement in America? Not an Adventist. You know who pioneered the modern health restaurant movement in America? You know who's pioneering the health and wellness centers in America? You know who's pioneering the health food stores and, and all of those things in America right now? Who's pioneering? Who's pushing for all the environmental sustainability, stewardship, care for the earth stuff in America? Secular, liberal people, generally speaking. But the best way to teach the heathen who don't know God is through his works. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Fear God. Give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven and earth. 
Seventh-day Adventists have a unique position in society, believing in the Creator and believing that the Sabbath is a memorial of creation to demonstrate the reality of our beliefs by caring about the natural world. The very worst thing we can do is tell the heathen that God doesn't exist by not caring about planet Earth. It may be subtle, it may be subconscious, it may be very, very hard to detect, but every action that we partake of that says that we don't care about planet Earth, I mean, why care about the rainforest in the Amazon? Why care about the kid in Africa slaving for the chocolate that you and I like to eat on some ridiculous day's wages under some heavy oppressive taskmaster? Why care about free trade, fair trade rather? Why care about those things? It's all going to burn. God is coming back to destroy those who destroy the earth, he says. I, like I said, I was trying to spin this in the most positive way possible. So what would happen if Adventists became interested in all those things? What if we became pioneers in the local movement for health food and medical care and farming and, and, and all these things? Yes, ma'am. We would be the head and not the tail. Tell me which one of you here today would not love to have been in Joseph's shoes staring at Pharaoh. Tell me which one of you here today wouldn't have wanted the president to pick up his phone, call you, and say, I heard you know how to solve problems other people can't solve. Somebody said I'd be scared, is that what you said? It'd be a little intimidating. But the best way to teach the heathen who don't know God is not by giving them a Bible study about the Sabbath or talking to them about the Pope being the Antichrist. The best way to reach the heathen, by the way, you're noticing that our world is becoming increasingly and increasingly secular, which means that our model of evangelism and ministry and service should be slightly or maybe not so slightly shifting to something that does better at reaching people where they are. Here's an interesting quote there at the bottom from 19 manuscript releases. A knowledge of how to cultivate the land will make rough places much smoother. This knowledge will be counted a great blessing even by our... I remember, you remember I asked you to keep a certain word in your mind after the first hour? Is that word right there? In the context of the previous paragraph, who were our enemies? But the people who were forcing a certain form of worship on all the world, those were the people who were our enemies. We were, we were to go into the country, raise our own provisions, because it would keep us somewhat free from the interference of our enemies. It would protect us. It would isolate us a little bit from what's happening in the world around us. But now she flips that on its head and says the knowledge of how to grow food would be counted a blessing even by our enemies. Why? Because they still need to eat. And maybe like Pharaoh, when the world's falling apart, they'll be just as hungry as he would have been in the time of that famine. Do you think that Pharaoh cared that Joseph was a Sabbath keeper? 
think that Joseph was looked down on by Pharaoh because he paid tithe? Think he cared that Joseph probably had some other peculiar theological ideas? I have the feeling that he didn't either. Neither did Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think people in our world would care that you didn't want to worship on Sunday when their local community or your local neighborhood was dependent upon you or us for their food? An interesting story, real statistic. The average age of the Seventh-day Adventist church member in North America is about 65 years old. The average age of the American farmer is also about 65. And there are less people involved in farming, farm owners, operators, than there are people in prison in the United States. There are two million plus people in prison. There are less than that that are full-time owner operators of farms. And their average age is 65. Add 20 years to that, subtract all those that retire, and do a little bit of mental math and realize how few young people are going into farming, and let's do a little food tabulation and figure out what the food supply is going to look like in 20 years. Farming has been degraded, downplayed, belittled, and oppressed as a professional occupation to the point where it's even a joke. That if you want to be poor or you're not smart enough to do anything else, you go into farming which is exactly the opposite of anything that's true. And anybody who's grown anything, and especially if you failed, realized that farming is not simple. It's extremely complicated. You're dealing with the world that God created. It's amazing, complex, intricate, all related to itself, piles of symbiosis. You do this and it affects that over there. You do that and it affects this over here. It takes a massive amount of understanding to farm really well, especially in a sin-cursed world. What I'm saying to you is that all of our society 20 years from now may be looking at a very different food supply picture if there aren't people around growing the food. And maybe there's an opportunity there if time lasts that long to put ourselves in a position for the world to be dependent upon us at least as far as possible. If you think about the whole Adventist package, our medical missionary work, our health message, and the other things that are unique to us as a people, all of which strangely seem to be points of crisis in American society. What's happening to medical care? Third leading cause of death, John Hopkins University says, is going to the hospital. Did you know that? Real statistic. Third leading cause of death in America is going to see a doctor. I want to go see a doctor if I put my motorcycle around a tree. I don't want chamomile tea. I do ride a motorcycle. I don't want chamomile tea if my head hits the pavement. I need a physician. ER, trauma level four, best of the best. Please, right away, pronto. But I don't need a guy with a knife to teach me how to live different to get rid of persistent lifestyle-based diseases. Adventists are uniquely positioned as missionaries. It will capture the opportunity to be those missionaries. I'm going to share a couple stories with you. 
since we started the farm on Fresno Adventist Academy's campus three years ago, we have had ridiculous numbers of opportunities to integrate with the public. Stuff that has been, to me, shocking from my own perspective that God has blessed us so much in that way. Let me tell you a couple stories. Some of them are just little. But I got one today. Actually, I think I put it on the screen. Yesterday, rather, when I got off the airplane. Yeah, I put it up here. Yesterday, when I got off the airplane, I turned my phone on. My phone started binging. You know, all the text messages and everything comes through that were, you know, held up when you were up in the air. I was up in the air. This lady from the Clovis Unified School District, Virginia Boris Elementary School, new school in Clovis, suburb of Fresno. She says, hi, Mr. Obermiller. We're interested in starting a school garden at our elementary school and got your name from so-and-so. I took that person's name out since it's being recorded. Our new school, our school is new in the Clovis Unified District, and we are excited about opportunities. We would love to have you come out and look at our space and help us brainstorm location and needs. Please let me know if you're available to help us get this project started. Thank you. This is not the first public school to contact us asking us for help. And by the way, I actually don't even know who the person is whose name was on there, which I took out. I don't even know who it is. Not a member of the school, not a parent that I know of, not a member of our CSA, doesn't buy produce from us. I have no clue who the person is. Or what about the charter school that found out about us because one of the people that works there is a vegan and she orders her produce from us, so she told her school administration about us and they want to build an elementary school garden at their charter school for their kids. There was this one guy who found out about us pretty early. He came with another guy and toured the farm and asked us what we were about and then he disappeared. And I thought it was really cool that he showed up out of nowhere. He told somebody else about us who organized a bus tour 80 people. This lady called and she says, um, or excuse me, it was a guy. He called and says, hey, I'm working with such and such an organization. We put together a uh, tour of the Central Valley every year. And this year we're talking about environmental issues in the state of California. And uh, we'd like to come and visit your farm and your school. Can we do that? I said, yeah, well, tell me more about it. He says, well, what we're doing is we're working with policymakers, legislators, and regulators at the Department of Pesticide Regulation at the EPA. And we're touring them of, of, of parts of the Central Valley, showing them the amount of pesticide exposure that kids have in school. Because Fresno County, the county I live in, has, uh, well, number one, it's one of the most prolific agricultural counties in the world. It also has the highest usage of pesticide in the state of California, much of that being rural. And so kids in rural schools are exposed to large amounts of pesticides. So we're touring central California, showing policymakers the amount of pesticides that kids are exposed to. And we heard about your school, and we would like to highlight one school that's chemical-free. So they brought 80 people from Sacramento, policymakers, people with the EPA, Department of Pesticide Regulation, environmental, um, uh, no, 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 the guys who, lobbyist type people, okay, they're, they're, they're pushing certain agendas. We want to bring all these people and show them your school. So me and the principal school sat there with them, toured them of the farm and explained to them what we wanted to do. And I didn't think anything of it. Then a few weeks later, I got a call from somebody who worked for the local newspaper. And they said, I was told to, about you from somebody else. And it was that non-Adventist girl that I hired. Remember I showed you back at the very beginning and I kind of joked, is it okay to hire non-Adventists? 
she told a friend of hers who's worked for the Fresno newspaper for a long number of years, he writes for the food and drink section, particularly about agriculture, and so he wanted to highlight our farm school on the front page of the food and drink section in the newspaper. And so he came and interviewed us and slapped this big front page thing on the Fresno newspaper. And then I got another call. This lady, she calls, her name was Maria. She says, um, I was on this bus tour. You probably don't remember me. You're right, I don't, I don't remember you, but I remember the bus tour. You were one of the people. Yeah, 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 okay. Well, I work for a, um, an organization in Sacramento. It's a recycling company. And she says, my boss sends his kids to a school up here in Sacramento. And they're having this, uh, they're having this summit and they're bringing in different speakers, and they want them to, br- to speak on different topics. And I was wondering if you would be willing to speak. They asked me to call you and ask if you'd be willing to speak to this group of students. And I said, yeah, that's fine. Tell me a little bit more about it. And what it is, they're having an environmental summit this year. Every year they have a summit, and they bring in different speakers, but it's on a different topic every year. It might be social issues or whatever. This year it was on environmental issues. And so we would like to highlight a farm that's an educational farm, like on a school campus, and we'd like somebody to talk to us about education and agriculture and how the two go together. Would you be willing to do that? I said, well, duh, yeah. I didn't say it that way. I said, yeah, I really would love to do that. And I asked the question that she hadn't naturally answered because I noticed she actually didn't say it. I said, well, what school is it? Kind of an important detail, right? Before I tell you, I want to go back. The knowledge of how to cultivate the land will make rough places much smoother. A knowledge will be, this knowledge will be counted a great blessing even by who? Our enemies. I said, so what school is it? She says it's the Jesuit school (laughs) in Sacramento. Yeah. Yes, I'll be there. So she gave me the phone number and gave my phone number to the lady that was coordinating the project at Jesuit, this is the name of it, Jesuit High School, Carmichael, California. She called me, explained their summit a little bit more, explained how long I'd have and all these other things that they wanted me to do. And when it got to the end, I was like, Lord, you're not going to let me into heaven if I don't realize what you're doing right here and use the opportunity that you presented to me. So I'm thinking about all this silent in me and I, in my head and I'm praying and I said to the lady, I know you're a religious organization and one of my personal pet peeves is that people who believe in the Bible and believe that the world was created by God don't care about the environment. Would you mind if I shared from a spiritual perspective? She says, yes, please do. So I went up there, January of last year. I stood in a Jesuit auditorium. And I shared educating the whole man, mind, body, soul. And I talked to them about the benefits of agriculture and physical activity to your health. I talked to them about the benefits of hands-on learning to academic performance. And I shared with them how hands-on learning actually makes you better students instead of dumber students. And that not sitting at a desk all day cramming info into your noggin, it's not really a great plan to do it that way. And when I got to the end, 
I said, did you know that all of this was put together for you by a God who loves you? Because the God that created the world with his word in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 says, planted a garden in Eden. He did not speak the Garden of Eden into existence. The first day he spoke and it was so. The sixth day, all the way through, he spoke and it was so, except for two things. He created man with his own hand out of the dust of the ground. And he created man's occupation and his residence with his own hand, the Garden of Eden. And I shared with them the gospel of God's love through the creation story. 300 high school Jesuit-educated boys. All because we have a farm on a school campus. We didn't advertise it. We didn't seek it. We didn't publicize it. The people that found out about us found out about us randomly and told other people randomly who called us for opportunities. And there's more that I'm not even telling you. Just because we're there, God has blessed us with opportunities to connect with people that we would have never connected with before. I speak from 10 years of evangelism experience. Unless they wanted to debate me, they would never let a Seventh-day Adventist into a Catholic school. But they welcomed me in, gave me a certificate, which I hung on my wall in my office because I have a farm and public schools and charter schools. We donate produce to a safe house that rescues girls from sex trafficking. We do other things as much as I'm stretched thin and don't have time and don't have money and other things. God has poured opportunities on us faster than I know what to do with them. That's right, amen. What opportunities exist for you? Only the depths of God love really knows. But they're better than you can think. They're better you can ask for. They're really good. And I don't want to go back to the way I used to live my life and trade what I have now for what I had then because God is so much better. End with uh, two thoughts here. You may not know this, but I'm going to read you Constantine's Sunday Law and I'm still over. I tried to be short. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all workshops be closed in the country. However, persons engaged in agriculture may freely and lawfully continue their pursuits because it often happens that another day is not so suitable for grain sowing or for vine planting, lest by neglecting the proper moment for such operations, the bounty of heaven should be lost. Did you know there was an agricultural exemption to Constantine's Sunday Law? And now it makes a lot of sense why Ellen White says the knowledge of how to grow your own food would be counted a blessing even by our enemies. That's right, that's right. Genesis 41, I'll end with these verses. Pharaoh said to Joseph, to his servants, can we find anyone like you? a man in whom the Spirit of God is? It's the question that I believe is being asked today by people all around the world. Where can we find those people that have an answer of peace in a time of crisis? 
One other thing, later in this story, Joseph was meeting with his brothers. His brothers were afraid, and Joseph answered his brothers with this very simple phrase, you meant it unto evil against me. You wanted to kill me. But I love the last line. Joseph said, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save many people alive. Because he grew up on a farm and was thrust into Egypt, became a solution to Pharaoh's crisis, God used Joseph to save many people alive, including the Israelites, his family. I want to challenge you in closing. God has opportunities for us. We've been talking for the last two hours. Why is this important? And there is no more important reason than discuss this than the mission of saving our children in our own schools, our people in our churches, and through all of us, the world around us. There's no greater reason to discuss this than the act of ministering to those in need around us. As I said earlier, not one drop of Jesus' blood should ever hit the ground, and we should use every avenue possible to reach those people. I'm all in favor of growing food. I'm all the more in favor of it if it's for the right motive, for the right reason. Thank you for your time. We'll pick it up tomorrow. Let's close with a prayer. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much. You've blessed us tremendously. Lord, I know for myself, you just I'm overwhelmed with gratitude at the opportunities you've given to this farm. We're a new farm. We're a startup business. We have all sorts of mistakes we've made, all sorts of things we've done wrong and ignorance. Like Pharaoh, we don't deserve any of it. But you've given us a lot. I'm so grateful personally and I want to thank you publicly that I have stories to share that have flowed from your heart of love for me and for all of us to encourage us to participate with you in your plan of saving those around us and in the process even finding peace for our own selves. Pray that you'd bless all of us here during this camp meeting experience. You'd bless our hearts that you'd overwhelm us with your love and draw us so much closer to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.